Matthew chapter 9. I am seldom, if ever, on Facebook. Um, I don't think I've put a post since 2015. And um, I think that's when I was running the first time for city council. Um, but I, I, I logged on, and uh, one of the, the the posts was from a pastor in our fellowship. And I liked the post, and I, I was getting ready for Wednesday night um, cause we're going through the hall of faith and, and it just tied in so clearly with some of the things that I've been considering, uh, especially looking through the hall of faith and they, they posed, or they made a statement and I posed a series of three or four questions with no answers. And I wanted to see what their response was. And I didn't respond to their responses. I just actually logged off and, and uh, clicked on this morning just to see what the responses were. And I was comforted for a number of reasons. One is I loved the comment. Secondly, I loved the responses because they were biblical. And it was a defense of truth. And I loved that. And, um, and, and as I saw their answers, it brought me back to either their age or that similar time in ministry where my answers were the exact same as theirs. And I'm looking at going, they're, they're doing great. And there was a joy in my heart in relation to it. Um, and the responses, one of the, the questions I posed, because it was pertaining to truth, and one of the questions I posed was, uh, was it okay for Rahab to lie? Was it, was it all right when the midwives lied to Pharaoh to protect the children? Um, I posed another question about uh, uh, maybe I did. I can't remember about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, how is it right to lie to protect Jews in your house when the Germans come to get them? Is it ever right to lie? Is it ever justifiable to a God who is the embodiment of truth and declares himself to be the truth and the life? And and the responses were interesting. Well, God commended <clears throat> their actions, but but does not condone their lies. Well, their actions were lying. I mean, it's, it's a circular thought here, and it's difficult to process. And yet, the other thing that jumped out at me is God didn't condemn their lying. He, he could have made it very clear. It's almost as though he left it nebulous. And, and we're going to see in this study today this, this struggle. Would you lie to protect your family? I, I, I can answer that for you myself. Yes, I would. I don't know about you, but I know I would. Yes. If their life was being threatened, you bet I'd lie. Would I lie to hide Jews in my, you bet I would. Yes, I would. I definitely. My struggle over Christendom in Germany was Dietrich Bonhoeffer had left a cushy job in the United States to go back into Nazi Germany to stop the destruction of the Jews. He said, you don't, you don't just slow the vehicle down. You put a wrench in its spokes to stop it in its tracks. He not only lied, he actually participated in a plot, a sinister plot in a sense, not sinister, but he, he participated in a secretive plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He's one of the greatest theologians of our time. And he falls in the camp with Martin Luther, who believed that the protection of truth sometimes required a lie. He stood in opposition to Augustine and to John Calvin, who didn't believe lying at any time was acceptable because it was contrary to the nature of God. 
So Christendom struggles over this. And I was so blessed to see one of our pastors and others in the responses struggling over it. And you come to a place where you think, what is, what is this about? And what's God doing? Yesterday, I participated in a men's uh, breakfast. And I heard one of the most fascinating presentations um, by Brian Laspada, the pastor at Calvary Chapel Malibu, on, on the, this covenant of mercy that you see in Jeremiah that the Lord puts forward. I was deeply touched by his teaching, and I just thought it was profound. And all this kind of swirled together as I'm looking at Matthew chapter 9, because in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to take a look at a guy who is so nauseated by the hypocrisy. And let me share with you the hypocrisy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is picked apart in Christendom for justifying lying in the case to protect Jews. While in Nazi Germany, the Christians would gather on a Sunday while the rail cars filled with Jews were packed like cattle as they were standing in their own excrement, dying of thirst and moaning, the rail cars would go through and the Christians would hear them while they were in service and to drown out the cries of the Jews, they would sing louder. In many cases, as they went off to Treblinka and Auschwitz and Birkenau, they would go out and dust the ashes off their car to drive to church. And I, I know the controversy, especially over the shack, as we've been going back and forth. And I, I marvel at Christendom as I've been reading. And, and, and uh, one of the members of our congregation had sent out to 100,000 pastors that he wanted them to go see the movie. And the responses of some of these pastors, well, I read the book and, da, 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 and the, the struggle they had with it. I got it. But in the course of all this, I've never seen a hearty debate over the 60 million babies that have been murdered in the United States. What is more atrocious to God? Is there a level of concern? The Noahic covenant, which was my responsibility yesterday to teach, and, and missing a, a grip of millennials. It, it's, it's almost as though millennials didn't attend this. It was older guys. Made me sad. And as I considered this Noahic covenant, Noahic covenant was this idea that if you take man's blood, your blood will be required of you. And this is still in force. This was the enactment of civil government. And the purpose of civil government is to protect life. Our founders established off of this Noahic covenant our, our declaration of independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable lives, among those being life. We're a nation of life. And, 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 and laying out this, that we're to be a voice for the voiceless. That's an admonition. That is an exhortation. That is a commandment of God. And yet the body of Christ is more concerned with the theology of a movie. And, and I'm glad but I would like to see the same fervency towards stopping and putting a wrench. Whether we stand out and protest or we, we decry its existence in our own community. California leads a nation in abortion. And, and, and what is the imbalance? And the struggle I will, I will clearly say to you, especially for millennials, as they look at the church and they say, what is the effectiveness of the church? What's the point? 
Is it where you come to get positive, feel-good messages where everything is settled and we get to go home and feel good about our meal? Or is it to transform the world in which we live? And stepping into that world in which we live requires that we step into areas that it's not his kingdom. These are dark and miserable areas of the world. Talk to some of the missionaries. It's fascinating to some of the missionaries that they'll be on, on, on site and, and they'll be partnering with God forbid a Catholic. Not a problem with me, but you don't understand the, 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 the way they look at the sacraments and, 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 and the Eucharist. And they don't have time to argue over those things. They've got lives to care for and children to feed. Orphans to care for. And yet we come to a place where we struggle. Yesterday I harvested honey. I didn't, but Tim Bond and, and Vadim did. I did kind of a Huck Finn sit back. Hey, you want to come paint my fence? It was fun. <laughs> but the queen in my, in, in my hive was gone. And the reason why is it's been so long since we've taken out the honey that she was, they called it honey bound or honey locked. Meaning there's no room to lay eggs because every area was filled with honey. So she went off to another location and this hive will die because there's no reproduction and the bees will only live till about May and then they'll be gone. You have to put another leader in there and you have to give them room to grow. And I think that's America. That's the body of Christ that we've become so satiated and overwhelmed with commodities and things that we no longer reproduce or value children or human life. And we're on the decline. We're always to be growing and always to be expanding and watching as these things take place. And, 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 and this was such a struggle for the author of today's writing. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit, but written by the hand of this man. His name was Matthew. And what's interesting is we're studying the book of Matthew. And today we see in this passage of scripture, his calling. And this is a fascinating man. And I think we'll be blessed by the study today and be all challenged. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to pick up at verse 9. And the passage reads, As Jesus passed on from there, he had healed the paralytic. Remember that? As he passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting on the tax, at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold many, and it says here tax collectors, but if you have a, a King James version, said new King James version, it says publicans. I like that reading. Many publicans and sinners and Democrats, publicans, Democrats. <laughs> publicans. Actually, they joined another party and then came back and then they called them Republicans. <laughs> Last service, it hurt my arm. I threw it out so bad with that joke. Many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the legalists, the harbingers of truth, when they saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray and ask God to. Give us some insight. Holy Spirit, you lead us into all truth. And Lord, you say, if any man lacks wisdom, he need but ask of you. And so God, would you grant us wisdom? Lead us into all truth to understand the purposes 
of your living word and cause us to come alive to it, that our lives would be fashioned and formed in your image, that we would honor you in our lives, that we love the truth and we know that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. But God, show us this idea of your love for humanity and how to operate in a gray world where your kingdom has yet to come and your will is yet to be done. And how do we operate in such a way as to understand your heart and your love for people? So Lord, help us, we pray, as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Rahab lied, and that's the simple truth. She lied to the people in Jericho as she was hiding the, the Jewish spies in her home. And she lied. And the story's told in Joshua chapter two, you can read it on your own. She was celebrated for her faith in Hebrews 11.31 and she was also commended for her works in James 2.25, her works. And her works were deceptive. She hid the spies and was asked by the leader, are they here? And she said, no. Now, the Bible didn't justify her lie, but it did not condemn it either. And I can show you more scriptures in God hating lying than I can for God justifying it or condoning it. And I can do that probably 300 to 1. Another example, few there are, but another example is the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1.15 and verse 21 when they lied to Pharaoh's army when they were allowing these Hebrew children, boys, to be born. Elijah lied in 2 Kings 6.19. And I I like this, that scripture offers no subtle philosophical distinctions to justify or to excuse such, such lies as these. In none of these cases does God say this is wrong. It would be so simple if he did. And you look at theologians like John Calvin, he said, her lie, meaning Rahab's, though told for a good purpose, is contrary to the nature of God, thus it is always wrong. It is necessary to condemn this and every deception because God is truth. And that's right. Other Christians, such as Martin Luther, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they've been less ready to condemn Rahab's lies or all other lies. Luther defended a lie for the sake of of the good and for the Christian church, a lie in case of necessity, a useful lie, such lies, he said, would not be against God. That's Martin Luther. Now, I got to tell you, we're right to be ready, or I should say, we're right to be worried about being ready to accept deception. We have to be very, very cautious about what Luther said. But I have to tell you, Adopting Calvin or Augustine's position is one of rejecting all deception I struggle with. God is truth, yes? God is truth. But truth is not a second God. God is truth, yes? But truth is not a second God. I'll explain that momentarily. Just as love is not a second God, but God is love. 
Christianity, we'll see in this passage, isn't always about rules, but the intent of the heart. Now, the scripture says the heart is deceitful above all else. True. But in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's case, where if he were to have told the truth, hundreds would die. Those who are being persecuted by an ungodly government. One author writes, with Bonhoeffer, it was keeping rule A and break rule B, or keep rule B and break rule A. Whichever way he turned, he would have been sinning. You could say, in a sense, that he chose the lesser of two evils. He hated lying, and he actually repented of it, but he wrote of its necessity. He said it was for the greater good. Again, let me ask you the question, would you lie to protect your family? Now, not everybody said yes, and many are struggling with it, and I understand that. You're in the line of of Calvin and Augustine, and you have a heart for the truth, as do I. The verse God called me into the ministry was study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But here is the turning point, and this is what we weigh. For Bonhoeffer, loving his fellow man trumped any other rule in Christianity or Judaism. Let me share with you where he got that from. Jesus's comment, Matthew 22, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. I love my family. I have a covenant relational family. I'm called to protect them. I'm a covering for them. I've heard countless stories of Armenians as I worked in an Armenian church for five years as they went through the Armenian Holocaust and the ones that are alive today, many of them, the majority of them had to lie to get out of being massacred by Muslims. Now it's easy to stand here in the comfort of this room in the security of our first world problems and decry what they did as ungodly. And yet many of them have been some of the greatest contributors to America. I'm grateful for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm grateful for the folks that had that not happened, I wouldn't have been led to the Lord by an Armenian. He'd be dead because his mother would have been killed. She was the only one to survive the massacre of her entire family. And she was protected by deception. You know the story of Pinocchio where he lies and his nose grows longer? Yes? You've seen the Disney rendition of it? Well, here's what's fascinating about the original book that was written by Carlo Collodi in in 1881 to 1883. The first real lie in the book is not Pinocchio's, but Geppetto's. His father, his maker, was the first to lie. And the lie in this passage was that He sold his coat in order to buy Pinocchio a school book. And he lies to the boy to tell him that he sold it because he said, I found that it was too hot and I didn't need my coat. It's a classic example of paternalistic lie told with good intentions. In case you've ever told one to your kids. 
Your eyes will stay that way if you keep doing that. <laughs> Pinocchio understood what his maker was, had really done, and unable to restrain the impulse of his good heart, he sprang up and throwing his arms around Geppetto's neck, he began kissing him again and again. Pinocchio does have a good heart and a subtle enough intelligence to understand that though Geppetto had lied to Pinocchio, he had done so out of kindness. I mean, think of the lies that we, we get. I remember this one in high school. <laughs> you will use algebra in your adult lives. <laughs> Colleges care more about you than your SAT scores. We want to hear what you have to say. I love this quote. A truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies that you can invent. Right? Thinking, in a sense, to one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I like what this author says. God is truth, but truth is not a second God, just as love is no God though God is love, and life is no God, though God is the life. Devotion to God should lead us to speak the truth, to love our neighbor, to serve life. In this sad world, however, sometimes we find ourselves in situations where to speak the truth may harm a neighbor or where a lie, as Rahab's story, may be necessary to preserve a life of a neighbor. Even the instructions not to bear false witness in the Ten Commandments is put in the covenant context of not harming one's neighbor. We live the truth not for its own sake, but for God's sake and for our neighbor's sake. Second, when we read, for example, that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the point is that through Jesus, God is faithful to God's covenant promises. The test for our speech in our lives then is not simply whether we say or do corresponds to what we think, but faithfulness to covenant. This test requires of our speech more than simply telling the truth. The devil may be the father of lies, but there is also, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a truth which is of Satan. For example, when we pass along the gossip that injures a neighbor, we're not excused simply because the gossip is true. Sometimes covenants are broken by the demand that the truth be told. He tells a story. A teacher asks a child in front of the class whether it is true that his father often comes home drunk It is true, but the child denies it in front of the class. Bonhoeffer says the child is not wrong to lie. He suggests that it is the teacher who is at fault here rather than the child by abusing the relationship of the father and the child. The teacher exploits the obligation to tell the truth, to force the student to reveal the father's weakness in front of the class and to violate his covenanted identity. That's none of the teacher's concern. If you're not part of the solution or the problem, keep your mouth shut. And the child is forced to lie. Who's at sin? Who's at sin when Rahab lies? It's the one who seeks to kill the Jews. Who's at fault when when Bonhoeffer is hiding Jews? It's the one who seeks to kill the Jews. They're the ones who have forced in this fallen world that his kingdom hasn't come and his will has not been done. They're the ones who have forced this issue. I say this because as we look at Matthew, the scripture says as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. 
in Luke 5 and in Mark 2, it reads, as Jesus went out, he saw a tax collector named Levi in Luke chapter 5 sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose, and followed him. Mark says, then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. He said to him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Levi, he's not of any other tribe, but the Levites, thus his name is Levi. In the book of Matthew, he quotes the Old Testament 99 times. That's more than all the other gospels combined. 38 times in the book of Matthew, he says, so that it might be fulfilled. He knows the messianic prophecies. He is immensely, intimately in understanding of them and quotes them and says, so that it might be fulfilled. This man knows the word. He knows it up one side and down the other. In addition, not only does he use the Old Testament quotes 99 times and 38 times saying so that might be fulfilled, which outnumbers all the others as well. The one word he uses more than all the other books of the Bible combined is the word hypocrite. Matthew uses this like it's going out of style more than the rest of the Bible combined. Hypocrite, 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 hypocrite. And the concept of hypocrite, and we love to use this today, especially if we're not in the church, we love to call Christians hypocrites. Because Christians say one thing, and they do something else. Hypocrite. If that's the definition, I am guilty. Prior to the Bible, the word hypocrite used to be a positive term. It was an actor's term. You would put on the face of a frowning person to, you know, you didn't have projection with microphones, so you'd put on this mask, and they, the, the audience could see it. And even though you were smiling underneath the mask, you were still portraying someone who was sad. You would switch the mask to something happy. It was comedy, and people would see that, and it's putting on masks. But underneath the mask, something different is happening. And it was used as an acting term. But when Matthew uses it and cites Jesus using it and and applying the word hypocrite, Jesus saved the word hypocrite for the teachers of truth, teachers of the law. Doctors, lawyers of the law. Masters, doctors of the law, of the truth. And he used this word for them, hypocrites. Because Jesus' definition of hypocrite is not saying one thing and doing something else. Jesus reserved it for something even far worse. Those who knew the truth, but deliberately kept people away from the truth for the sake of personal gain. As a Christian, we'll say one thing. I say it all the time, and I do something else. Those things I want to do, I don't do. Those things I don't want to do, those I do, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Yes, it's almost like we're schizophrenic as Christians. I get it. (laughs) But just because we set a standard for ourselves and fail to achieve it doesn't make us a hypocrite. We would be a hypocrite if we set a standard and didn't show you how to get there through Christ. It's a covenant relationship. Not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The times I fail are the times I'm relying on myself. But for the teachers of the law and the teachers of the truth, Christ was not their God. Truth was. It wasn't covenant. It wasn't relational. 
truth was justifiable that we are superior than you because we have this and you don't. Matthew looked at that and said, you're no different than the Romans. You use truth to gain money. You use truth to gain influence. You use truth to gain notoriety and position. What makes you different than the Romans? Jesus would point out that the law doesn't save. Christ saves and it's done through mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We're saved not by our observation of the truth. We observe the truth because we're saved. And it's out of a relationship. I don't go home to my wife because I said some words to a minister and signed a contract and put on a ring. I go home because I love her. It's relational. It's a covenant. Two parties engaged. A contract is done through legal systems. A contract is where you sign it and the government's involved. A covenant is relational. A husband and a wife. God and his children. It means that there's intimacy. It means that it's a a willingness. For them, you you look at Matthew, and here's a man that was in the priesthood for more for most intents and purposes. He saw the hypocrisy of the religious system and he was so burdened by it that he more than all the other authors of the Bible used the word hypocrite. He was so nauseated by it that not only did he leave the religious section, the religious sector, he joined the enemy and became an instrument of Rome. He was placed in Capernaum. The chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, oversaw it all But Matthew was a local guy and you had to bid for that contract with the Roman government who had its boot on the neck of every Jew in Judea. They were responsible for the oppression of the Jewish people. They were, they were responsible for all the misery of the Jewish people. And he's a turncoat. He leaves the church and he joins the Romans. And as he bids for the ability to extract from them money He's given a contingent of Roman soldiers, so he's intimately aware with these Roman soldiers, and he's also connected. So when we get to the last pages of Matthew and we see Jesus in the temple, we have insights through Matthew's account that no other gospel writer gives us because he knew all the government officials. He was a publican. So he's, he's reviled and hated, and he hangs around with people just like that, publicans and sinners, They had money, but they had no relationship with God. And so they had to somehow you sage their misery. And so they hung around with drunkards and prostitutes and they were all there. And Rome was vile and the orgies and the things that they engaged in. That's Matthew. And there he is. He's able to get a percentage of every Jew that would go by and he would milk them. Anything that moved, he was able to tax. And if they didn't like it, he just pointed to the centurions and they'd stick it to him. And this guy who is so sickened by the hypocrisy of the religious world has gone hook, line, and sinker into the world itself. I might as well be honest in my dishonesty. And I got news for you. I have a lot more respect for somebody who says it doesn't work. I'm going here. Because if this is all there is, if there is no heaven, if there is no savior, if there is nothing, then go all in. Live it up. Do something because you got just a really short time. And I, who's to deny you a few roses on your casket when you spend an eternity in hell? I Go for it. Go for it. That's hyperbole, by the way. 
than to have somebody play the game in a church. While they use the truth as an insulation to keep people out of relation. It's amazing how a legalist keeps you at arm's distance because they don't want you to examine their own life. And they justify their life by keeping you at a distance by judging you. It doesn't mean that we're not to judge unto identification, but not unto damnation. But the part that touches me that I want to focus on is how it begins. You see, in Luke, it says, after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. In Mark, it says, and he went out again, multitude came to him, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. But Matthew's account is different than Luke's. Matthew's account is different than Mark's. Matthew's is a personal account. And this is what Matthew says. Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the multitudes came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, oh, excuse me, wrong one. As he passed by from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Luke saw a tax collector. So did Mark. But Matthew points out that when Jesus walked by me, he saw me. When I went to the Starbucks, I saw a homeless guy. I didn't see a man. Didn't even get to know his name. When you see a drug addict, you don't see a man. When you see a prostitute, you don't see a man. When you see somebody of a different political party, you don't see a man or a woman. And Matthew said he saw me. You see, when you define somebody by what they're doing, the superiority is yours. I'm glad I'm not one of them. But when your heart is broken because you've been saved by grace through faith, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And, and God says mercy triumphs over judgment. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we've received it, thus we give it. We give it in order to receive it. It is this well that must be filled by our life. And so when you come across somebody, you see a man or a woman, not somebody who is less than you. You don't see an enemy. You see a man or a woman loved by God, creating the image of God. That's the challenge of the Christian life. He elevates mankind. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Don't we want people to know who we are? The times we don't are the times we want to be deceptive, self-deceived. And it's those times where we put the law forward. And it happened as Jesus sat at the table of the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Matthew invites him into his home. And when he sits down, he's sitting with a publican. He's sitting with a betrayer of the Jews. He's sitting with a Roman cohort. He's sitting with the most vile human being on the planet from the eyes of the Jews. And not just him, Matthew's had the audacity to bring every other publican, tax collector, Roman lover into the room. And he's added with it every alcoholic and every prostitute that they've been partying with. And they're all at the table. And Jesus has the audacity to have his disciples sit at the table. 
Imagine what filthy manners they possess and how they're drinking and the junk they're getting on the floor and they don't wipe their face or wash their hands and they track in mud. Anybody with me? He's sitting at the table and the teachers of the law, the harbingers of truth, the Pharisees, they saw it. And they didn't say to Jesus, they said to his disciples, and that's interesting, never go to the principal when you want to sow discord, go to the secondary. And subtly they whisper into the ear of the disciples, why does your teacher eat with publicans and sinners? They didn't see men and women. They saw publicans and sinners. Jesus heard it. Eagle ears. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's the great physician, the scripture says. He's not a practicing physician. He's the great physician. He's come to heal. By his wounds, by his stripes, we've been healed. He's come to set us free. He's come to deliver us from sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He's sitting across from those who declare themselves to be harbingers of the truth and they can't see people. They see publicans and sinners. They don't see people. Jesus is putting a priority over it. He doesn't dismiss that they are the holders of the law, that through their hands have come the scriptures we hold today, that they crossed every T, they dotted every I. But he's saying this is the fulfillment on these two commandments, hang all the law of the prophets. It's about people. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And all they can say is he's sitting with them because they're better. Because they have the truth. And the truth is insular to keep those people out. That's not the church. That's not Jesus' intention. He's rocking the world. He gave the Sermon on the Mount on what a Christian looks like. Then he sends them in, and the very first people he touches are all pagans. He hangs out with a leper. He touches him. He delivers a demoniac and casts the demons into somebody, some guy's herd of swine. In that instant, 2,000 of his property went off the cliff and they wanted him to leave because you ruined my herd. Let alone the guy was seated, clothed in his right mind. They don't care about him. My pigs are dead. In the last story, they tore the roof off. They destroyed private property. He didn't condemn it. To the contrary, he commended the faith of the guys that ripped the roof off and said, your faith has healed this man. You can fix a roof. We have healed your buddy. The guy that had the chains and was scratching him. Look. Yeah, but our pigs. People over prophets. In position, it's people, a man, a woman. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's sitting across from men who believe themselves to be healthy 
and they are completely self-deceived. They can't see their need for the Savior that they have proclaimed exists or is coming, who's right before them in the embodiment of truth itself, sitting with publicans and sinners, and they consider themselves righteous. And Jesus said, I I can't help you. Yeah, my side hurts, and I got this headache. I'm a little jaundiced, but I don't need to go to a doctor. I'm fine. This cough has been persistent. This scab doesn't go away, but I don't need a doctor. I'm fine. You're an idiot. I don't trust in doctors. Granted, they're practicing. I think it takes a lot more faith to go to a doctor than it does to come to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, fellas, all you healthy ones out there that have the truth, and you don't see people, you see publicans and sinners, I just want you to learn what this means because you're the harbingers of truth. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I like what this author says in regards to Rahab and lying. We must remember our capacity for self-deception when we start justifying our lies as harmless or necessary or useful or loving. As Christians, we make decisions, including decisions about our words, not simply as a rule and surely not simply as utility calculators, but as people disposed to truthfulness, prepared to regret even the justifiable lie In a broken world, sometimes a lie is justifiable, but every lie, even the justifiable one, is a sad reminder of our brokenness. You see, God covenanted mercy with Jacob. Jacob was a bad dude. He deceived his father, he deceived his brother, stole the birthright. His mother was in on the lie and the deception. He ends up getting to keep the birthright. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, and he still got to keep Bathsheba as a wife. What kind of a God is this? God of mercy. What is mercy? Not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Contracts are professional, whereas covenants are relational and relationships, and all relationships require mercy. And what is mercy? Not getting what we deserve. God has the ability to meet our need in the riches of Christ, even when we don't realize we have that need. Jacob tricks his father, tricks his brother, his mother's in on the lie, and he has an encounter with God on his way to Beersheba, Esau's coming to kill him. He's scared to death. He sent his family on ahead and he starts, this guy shows up and he starts wrestling with him. As he's wrestling with him, Jacob finally gets him in a headlock or a leg lock or something and he's, you know, about ready to tap out. And they've been wrestling until all night until the sun's about to come up 
The scripture says in Genesis 32, it says he arose at night, took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons. He took them, sent them over the brook. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And now he saw that he did not prevail against him. The man touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the socket of Jacob's hip went out of joint as he wrestled with him. And, and he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, Jacob said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? And Jacob said, Jacob. You see, we're all wrestling with God. And we want to justify our misery. We want to justify our lives at the expense of somebody else by making ourselves elevated. But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a kingdom of God. You're not wrestling with man. You're not wrestling with me. You're wrestling with God. And that's the same with me. I'm not wrestling with you. I'm wrestling with God. And it comes to a place where he wants one question from you. And this is going to set the tone for the rest of your life. What's your name? Better translated, who are you? When, when Jacob said, my name is Jacob, his name means deceiver, supplanter, heel catcher. I'm a con artist. I'm a liar and I've always been a liar. He says, now I can bless you. Because when we're honest with God, he's merciful with us. And he says, I'm going to give you a new name. It's Israel, one governed by God. And you are going to be the dispenser of this covenant of mercy. And it'll go with you all the days of your life. Jeremiah wrote of it. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their inward parts, their mind, and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You see, the covenant of mercy promises, and it delivers, and it empowers us. Empowers us to what? To relationship with others, that we don't see sinners, we see people. You have been set free and you've been granted mercy to extend mercy and we need it every day. And I have news for you. There isn't an honest person in the room. I didn't say that, the scriptures did. There are none righteous, no, not one. Whether you're deliberately deceptive or self-deceived, whether you elevate yourself at the expense of another human being because you're better. God says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you be a servant of all. Legalism is idolatry. I love this. He who thinks he is what he thinks of himself, all false identity is idolatry and needs to be confessed and repented. And that's exactly what Jacob did. He said, it's me, I'm a liar. And when we can see ourselves in our own sin, we have a lot more compassion and love for others. And we don't identify them by their sin. We see them in the eyes of God. He saw Matthew a man. I close with this. 
Jacob was willing to wrestle all night for a blessing. David was a man after God's own heart. He sought deliverance from his enemies, even though he had committed adultery and murder, and he was a liar. The covenants of God are the covenants of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The psalmist writes in Psalm 147, God does not delight in the strength of a horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. Let me clarify for those of you who are going to mistakenly misrepresent me. I am not advocating lying. I love the truth. Nobody embodies it save but for God. He is the truth. He is the life. His word is true. He hates lying, but he loves people. Don't use the truth as your God. That's idolatry. Serve the Lord. Speak the truth in love. Fill your table. Fill your table not with publicans and sinners, but with men and women who need Jesus. Don't allow your false God to keep you elevated above the riffraff of the world. And so somehow that's beneath you. We are bondservants. We are doulos. We get to the bottom of the boat and we row. And there's people to be touched and loved and ministered to. You see, Jesus loves people more than pigs. He loves people more than roofs. He loves the unborn. Let's be about his business and his calling. It's a deep one, but it's a profound one, and it's a powerful one in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, let's have the worship team come. This is what I'm going to ask you to do. This is kind of a heavy one. We're going to spend some time, and when, if you've got to go, you've got to go. I get that. But this is, this is a sacred time. This is a covenant time with the Lord where we just say before God, would you give me the eyes to see people and step out of the security of my insular world where I've surrounded myself with truth as a barricade to touch lives? The truth is vital. Don't, don't neglect it. Implement it. Activate it. But as you do, you're going to step into some dirty areas and your table's going to be surrounded with some filthy eaters but love on them, minister to them, speak the truth in love and watch what God does. As we spend time in prayer, I want God, I want you to ask God to move on your heart and give you compassion. We don't see tax collectors anymore. We see people, Matthew. Let him move upon you. Every person you come into contact with is a divine appointment from the Lord and that's a person that needs the love of Christ. And we're servants. And watch what God does in and through us for his glory. Ask him to move as we pray together. Amen.